Welcome to another episode of the Dan Norton Show. Today, I am here with Jerome Armstrong. I got to know Jerome through Facebook. He contacted me through Facebook a few weeks ago, and he said he was interested in talking about Mike Mincer, who is a bodybuilder and who has been influenced by Ayn Rand and objectivism. And apparently he's, he's influenced other people. Uh, he's introduced other people to Ayn Rand and objectivism. And since Ayn Rand is a theme of my channel, I thought it'd be interesting to have Jerome come on and talk a little about that. So Jerome, thanks for coming on. Dan, thanks for having me. Sure thanks. So uh, can you just tell my audience a little about yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Jerome Armstrong. I own and operate my own personal training studio uh, in Grafton, Wisconsin, a small suburb of Milwaukee. And I promote uh, essentially a theory of exercise, which is anathema to mainstream fitness orthodoxy. Uh, the style of exercise I promote is high intensity training, which is not to be confused with high intensity interval training. And it's uh, basically its tenets are that exercise to be most productive has to be brief, has to be in frequency, and has to be extremely intense. So uh, all of my clients work out once a week for only about 15 minutes and uh, all have seen significant improvements. And I owe a debt of intellectual gratitude uh, to late bodybuilder, Mike Menser, who not only introduced me to this style of training, but also to Ayn Rand and the philosophy of objectivism. Okay. So first of all, how long have you been doing this bodybuilding or I get maybe just training in general, and then this particular kind of training in particular? I've always had a, an interest in fitness since I was a kid, um, started lifting weights when I was probably about 18, responded pretty well. And uh, not to belabor the point, but I guess that story really moves forward, uh, maybe 2012 when I found out I was going to be a dad. Um, I used food like a drug, put on 80 pounds at the time, uh, while my wife only put on like the 30 to 40 that most women do. Um, and I was really in a bad place mentally. I was working full-time in corporate America. I was volunteer firefighter. I was about to be a new dad. And I was almost 300 pounds. And after my daughter was born, um, I knew that I had to do something. Being a fighter fighter, you know that the number one cause of death is heart attack. And given that I was having trouble getting my weight under control, uh, I knew if I couldn't get that addressed, even given the constraints of my schedule and how busy I was, that... that um, I may not live to see my daughter make it to her teenage years. So at the time, I had been used to exercising 30 to 60 minutes, five days a week. And I, I knew that that approach wasn't going to work with my schedule. And in looking at different approaches, I came across Menser, this uh, professional bodybuilder from the 1970s who uh, advocated a style of training called high-intensity training, in which case, uh, or not sorry, I don't know which case, in which you would exercise once every five to seven days for no more than about a half hour at a time. Um, upon soaking up everything Menser I could, I found out he was a man of some of the highest intellect, intellect that I'd ever heard. And um, he was a, a fond admirer of Ayn Rand, of uh, the objectivism philosophy. And that really shaped a lot of his developing of this style of training. Um, I put Menser's diet and training principles into practice, lost uh, 90 pounds in a year, um, started developing kind of a casual love of philosophy, read uh, the Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged. I'm still trying to work through Leonard Peikoff's Objectivism and Philosophy of Ayn Rand, but it's really, really dense and intellectually challenging. Um, and that has really been life-changing in a lot of ways. Um, I was able to gain my health back and, and it really changed my perspective on life. 
Uh, so in a lot of ways, I tend to think Menser posthumously saved my life, um, but also really introduced me to uh, Rand. And, and because of that, um, I just feel indebted to him. Okay. Well, I'm glad to hear that you've uh, been able to make progress and that you've gotten your health back. That's, uh, that's great to hear. Uh, so could you talk a bit about, maybe explain in a little more detail what this high intensity training is, maybe give an example or two, and then contrast that with the traditional or whatever the non-high intensity training model or models are. Sure, the actual uh, original kind of vanilla theory of high intensity training dates back to the early 1970s. Uh, Nautilus exercise equipment inventor Arthur Jones um, was also quite the wildlife collector. He had gorillas, elephants, crocodiles. And upon witnessing a gorilla do a one-armed pull-up with seemingly a lot of ease, he figured out that the significant amount of muscle a gorilla has, although they're not extremely active, they spend like 80% of their day eating, comes down to the massive amount of intensity they generate in that particular movement. So we started designing equipment thinking that there are shortcomings to conventional barbells. And uh, I don't need to get into those too quickly, but he, he postulated that exercise to be most productive has to be very, very, very intense. And an activity that's very intense cannot be performed for a long period of time. So the second tenet is exercise has to not only be intense, but because of that has to be very brief. And because the magnitude of stress on the body is quite large when you're performing a relatively intense activity, you have to give your body time to rest and recover. So Jones in the early to mid seventies uh, advocated full body workouts that only lasted about 30 minutes, uh, two total sets for most exercises, um, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, basically. Um, this worked really well for bodybuilders at the time, like Casey Vieter, Mike Menser, Ray Menser, and a number of other bodybuilders from the eighties and nineties. Uh, conventional bodybuilding training at the time uh, most predominantly like the Arnold Schwarzenegger approach was uh, two to three hours a day, sometimes more, upwards of uh, six days a week, sometimes two hours in the morning and two hours at night. So uh, one methodology is essentially very, very high volume of workload and relatively low intensity. And the other is kind of the opposite. It's, it's very, very high intensity and very, very uh, short duration and frequency. Okay, so in total, like how much would Mincer be working out per week on this uh, uh, high intensity program? Sure. So Mike uh, nearly ascended the upper limits of um, the bodybuilding echelon. He placed second in the biggest bodybuilding competition in 1979, fifth at the competition in 1980. And at the time he was working out only about an hour and a half a week. And again, to contrast that to the more uh, Schwarzeneggerian approach, which could be two to four hours a day up to six days a week, um, it was a relatively uh, new approach to uh, conventional bodybuilding thought. Um, since then, a number of books have been written like Body by Science by Dr. Doug McGuff, and the theories continue to evolve to the point where most high-intensity trainers advocate as a starting point because there has to be some room for individualization. Um, one workout a week generally, and usually no longer than about 30 minutes. And I've seen the same thing in my studio. Most individuals tend to respond very, very well to one very intense full body workout about once a week. Okay. I think that's, it's pretty amazing that he, he was competing at the top level. So for titles like Mr. America, Mr. Universe, Mr. Olympia, and his workout routine is so radically different from people like Arnold Schwarzenegger or you know, any other bodybuilder. Um, yeah, 
there's a number of problems with conventional fitness training, maybe amongst the most uh, prevalent is the idea that more is better. And, and you kind of see this, um, this idea in a lot of areas of life. People think if, if some amount of something is good, that more of it's better, but certainly past a point, there's diminishing returns and not to overcomplicate exercise, but it's a, it's a physical stress on the body that's performed for a desired effect. You know, you, you induce a certain amount of resistance, physical effort on the body so that you can build bigger, stronger muscles and then other adaptations that correspond to supporting those muscles. And maybe the best parallel for that would be like, if you're trying to get a suntan, depending on an individual's genetics, you know, you could step outside in the sun for five minutes and then go back in for five minutes, go back out in the sun for five, go back in. And you could repeat this until you got enough sun exposure or you could step out on the sun on a hot California, August day, right around the middle of the day and get your 15, 20, 30 minutes, depending on whatever your genetics allow. And then you go back in and give your body the time that it needs to recover for you to get that suntan. But the thing is, if you go back out in the sun and expose yourself to more UV light before you're fully recovered from that or before that adaptation has occurred, you're just going to get sunburned. And the same kind of thing holds true with exercise. Okay. Yeah, I imagine you would get uh, just burned like a lobster if you uh, subject yourself to too much uh, UV in, uh, in a period of time. Um, it seems like it's breaking up a little bit. Is it uh, clear on your end? Yeah, I can still hear you, okay? I know I smacked the mic a few times and I was gesturing with my hands, so I apologize about that. Oh, okay, that's right. Yeah, it just sounded grainy for a few seconds. Okay, so another thing you mentioned that caught my attention was that when you're talking about how it's high intensity, I'm thinking, wait, you know, so, so guys like Arnold, they're not going high intensity. If you watch a movie like Pumping Iron, you know, the documentary of the uh, 1975 Mr. Olympia title, I think, um, you know, the guys are screaming in the gym and it, it looks like they're, they're doing some pretty uh, high intensity things. And to say yeah. that, you know, that's not high intensity, but uh, what Mentor is doing, that's high intensity. Like, um, is you know arnold talks about like he, he doesn't have a fear of fainting in the gym or throwing up while he's working out it sounds like that's pretty intense so how much how can you go more intense than that can you talk about that sure yeah. uh arnold is arnold's best publicist i guess i would start with that as a prefatory point and there have been a lot of things that have come out about pumping iron that um were fictionalized to a high degree to try and make it a little bit more entertaining the thing is uh intensity is a scale um, a maximally intense effort cannot be sustained for a long period of time. And to use a, an example of that is if you were to run out, you know, into a soccer field and sprint as fast as you possibly could, you couldn't keep up that same level of speed for very long, 10, maybe 20 seconds. And you see this with the world record, um, like 100 and 200 meter dash, uh, 100 meter dash, I think Usain Bolt ran like a 9.09 .09 or something insane like that. But when you start stretching out the speeds, or sorry, the distances to 400 meter, 1200 meter, you know, 2000 meter relays and stuff, um, the actual speed that is happening at any given moment drastically falls off because you can't keep up a maximal effort for that long. Um, so the idea with exercise is you want to generate as much intensity as safely possible. Um, most individuals, when they go into the gym and it just takes time when you have to train so many people before you see it, when most people think they're done, when an exercise is starting to get difficult and they set the weight down and even a lot of bodybuilders, when, um, 
they're training and it looks like they're pumping really hard and they set the weight down. Most people still have quite a few repetitions in the tank. I would suspect anywhere from five to 10 conventional repetitions, but intensity is ultimately a measure of momentary efforts. And the idea is at least uh, if you can do it safely and using motions that are concordant with muscle and joint function um, to generate as much intensity as safely possible and then move on to the next exercise. So um, I tend to think most individuals and we have to be careful using bodybuilding, but uh, most individuals um, probably are only exercising like a six, maybe a seven uh, at the highest from what I've seen in the gym. And if you really want to get results, you got to push that closer to like a nine or a 10 on like the rate of perceived effort scale. Okay. I can think of a pro and a con that might come to people's minds of this method. So the pro is it saves you a lot of time. So, okay. and you know, you don't have to spend hours and hours and hours in the gym. You can just go for a half hour or something uh, on a short. The, the con is maybe this is, you know, very going to be very fearful. You know, I have to really kill myself when I go in the gym and that's kind of intimidating. So I don't really want to do that. If we're a more moderate, low intensity workout, okay, well I can handle that. But if I know it's going to be torture, then how am I going to get myself to go through with that? So any yeah. thoughts on that? Yeah. yeah. Modern, um, high intensity training is done usually almost exclusively with exercise machines. Um, and this is one of the advantages of at least a properly designed machine is, if you're doing a lot of the trendy stuff, or like you're standing on a balance ball and you're trying to lift weights overhead, there's a lot more to worry about than just trying to overload the muscles given the resistance that you have. You have to focus on balance. You have to make sure that you're not gonna fall and you have to concentrate on form because the, the biggest way you're most likely to get injured is having improper form and usually exceeding a joint past a range of movement that it's normally designed to move in. If you're sitting on a machine doing a chest press, for example, um, all you have to worry about is contracting the targeted muscles against that resistance. And uh, usually just making sure that you're continuing to breathe properly, not cutting off your own air supply. And the body doesn't really know one version of resistance from the other. All it knows is the metabolic stress and mechanical tension that you're imposing on the body that creates uh, those desired results. So I would never recommend an individual do conventional squats or deadlifts to a large degree of intensity because as muscles start fatiguing, depending on how complicated that movement is, the potential for error and injury goes way, way up. But if you're sitting on a machine and all you have to do is maintain proper posturing and body alignment and contract your muscles against the resistance, there's really no harm that can be done. And in a lot of ways, the more intense you make the exercise, the safer it is. And I know that sounds really counterintuitive, but I could elaborate a bit on that if you'd like. Sure. I was just thinking, and maybe you could speak to this as well, that you, you have this sensation of, is it lactic acid that builds up in the muscle and that's causes the uncomfortable sensation. And it, even if you're not going to injure yourself, like break a bone because you fall or something, you just have that intense uh, lactic acid buildup or whatever it is chemically that gives you that feeling of discomfort. Yeah, pyruvate is an end product of glycolysis, which is uh, one of the primary energy systems or muscles used to generate ATP. And, and the storage form of pyruvate is lactate, which gets converted into lactic acid. And that, that's what creates that burning feeling in the muscles. So a distinction has to be made when people are exercising between just experiencing discomfort and experiencing pain. And for some individuals, sometimes buildup can get extremely high. Um, but as long as, as long as 
and it's hard to describe, as long as you're not um, feeling something that you shouldn't, exercise should be very uncomfortable. Because again, you're trying to uh, impose a certain stress on the body so that you can elicit a positive um, compensatory response. Okay. I'm just taking a few notes here. That's why I'm looking down at times. Sure. Yeah, you're good. Uh, I just wrote down mind over matter because I was thinking maybe <laughs> maybe that figures in here. So you've got this um, you know, uncomfortable sensation and you just have to use your willpower to go through with it. And um, maybe focusing on the results would help you um, <laughs> endure that because you know you're going to be rewarded. <laughs> um, okay. Well, and really, really being present in the moment. I, I, too many individuals go to the gym with the idea that they should go in and try and do either more weight or more repetitions than they did on their previous workout. And I'm a big proponent that improvements in your physical performance are the measure of progress, not the goal. Because the thing is, if, if I was training you, Dan, and you sat on a chest press machine and I said, okay, last time you got eight reps, let's see if you can get 10. When it comes down to that eighth rep, when you're really starting to struggle, your natural tendency is going to be, okay, like he told me, I have to get 10. I have to really try and get 10. And then what are you going to start doing? You're going to start holding your breath. You're going to start moving your body in ways that you probably shouldn't to try and get that repetition when the real focus should be trying to maintain posturing that keeps the movement focused on the muscles that you're trying to work and then intensity as you can while maintaining proper form and breathing. Um, so it's, it's maintaining the proper focus too, but yeah, there is a certain, there is a certain degree of knowing that it's going to be extremely uncomfortable, but pushing through that discomfort for, 60 to 90 seconds is one of the reasons why this style of exercise can be so effective. Mm -hmm. Another phrase besides mind over matter that came to mind is no pain, no gain, or at least uh, maybe no, no discomfort, no gain, yeah, or at least not the, as much gain. Maybe it's proportional, like the more discomfort, the more gains. Yeah, and I, I, I wouldn't want to get too legalistic with the wording, but exercise should never be painful. It should be extremely uncomfortable, um, but it, it shouldn't be painful. And that's a, that would be a pretty strong line that I would draw with, uh, with nomenclature. Okay. All right. Uh, I want to continue, but I want to run in the other room just to get a cough drop for a second and sure, I will be course. right back. Okay. Sounds good. All right. So let us, uh, actually, no, before I get to that, um, do you know anything about whether, Mincer took any drugs like steroids as he was competing? Mincer, and I'm glad we kind of got back on topic here. I apologize for going down a few rabbit holes there. Um, Mincer was very open with his life, and I won't name the compounds or the dosages, but in, in certain interviews, he was very forward that he was using performance-enhancing drugs, uh, was using steroids. Um, he admitted he started using amphetamines, I believe, in 1977 as an ergogenic aid. Uh, he wasn't only you know, a top mail order business, um, conducted a number of seminars, uh, sold t-shirts. Um, and I'm not sure, I believe uh, amphetamines could be legally prescribed at the time, uh, similar to now. And he used them for a number of years. And then I believe finally got off of amphetamines and steroids at some time in the 80s after he had retired. But Menser was, a very big and um, never hid the fact that he used drugs and um, a big believer that what an individual puts in a, his or her own body is up to their decision and, and 
you know, that they should act uh, concordant to their ethics. Um, and he was very against um, you know, the war on drugs and, and drug regulation for those reasons. Okay. So I guess then one might think he, he wasn't able to get to the level he did, you know, the very top of the bodybuilding profession without using those drugs. You might still think that high intensity training is a good, effective way to go about training, but maybe it's not enough to get to the level that he got to without drugs. I don't, I don't sure. know. That, that's, a, that's a fair point. I, I would counter and say that uh, uh, virtually every bodybuilder that has achieved any degree of success in the upper echelons and, and even uh, a lot of individuals on the state and local levels are, are taking, especially nowadays, nightmarish quantities of uh, anabolic steroids. Um, there's not a single bodybuilder in the, the 70s or 80s or 90s that is always adamantly held to the fact that they've never taken anything. Uh, the IFBB, which is the sole organization that put on the biggest bodybuilding shows in the world, did one drug tested show and everybody dropped out except for about half a dozen guys. Um, and even then, I don't know if they actually tested for that uh, particular contest. So with respect to bodybuilding, at least genetics is genetic. Uh, you can't eat, you can't and out train you can't to ever conquer your your limitations and certainly um anabolic use is is probably uh schwarzenegger in his own autobiography admitted that he started taking steroids when he was 13 um continued to take them all throughout his competitive years and uh i tend to think that uh most professional athletes uh in virtually every sport football bodybuilding cycling baseball I would strongly suspect 90 plus percent of, of almost all professional athletes are either taking anabolic steroids or, or any kind of performance enhancing drug that they risk it. Okay. So I was thinking in the, in the Olympics, it seems like they're pretty rigorous about testing for uh, steroids, but is it not the case in like in, in professional bodybuilding, they don't test or, but you didn't mean you, you said they do test in, in one contest at least, or is it inconsistent how they do it? Yeah. A bodybuilding, I think it's just a publicity thing. I believe the IFBB says that they randomly test. Um, but to my knowledge, these guys have ever been tested. There was only one Mr. Olympia contest when they said they drug tested and, and the vast majority of, uh, of competitors dropped out and even the ones that showed up were noticeably, you know, about 20 pounds, maybe even less other um, competitive weights. With respect to uh, the Olympics and like the World Anti-Doping Agency, um, I can't remember the name of the documentary. I think it's Icarus, it was on Netflix, uh, where a um, not even semi-professional cyclist, just a hobbyist ends up in contact with um, someone who ran Russia's doping program for their Olympic team. And he has them go through and, and use all the same drugs, do the same cycles, and then walks him through how to beat all of these tests. Um, so I, I strongly suspect, and people do get popped all the time um, for failing drug tests, but I, I would still very strongly suspect that uh, because of the amount of money and notoriety and fame that goes into a lot of these things, that for a lot of people, it's, it's well worth the risk uh, taking drugs. Okay. All right. So let us now bring in objectivism in Ayn Rand's, if we can. Sure. Absolutely. So uh, 
how did um, how did this affect Mincer? I, I was reading a little about him earlier today, and it seems like he he didn't get introduced to objectivism until maybe his 30s or after his i'm not sure exactly when it was but i'm wondering how ayn rand came into the picture and then what kind of effect that had on him yeah menser to my knowledge was always interested in philosophy and reading rand uh at least seriously and claim the title of objectivist um was an avid reader of uh, nietzsche um and I believe it was after 1880 that shortly after that, within a few years, he um, met someone that was an objectivist. Someone held a convention, I think his name was Rex Dante, would put on these seminars where he would memorize a lot of things. And Menser was so in awe of this man's intellect and asked him, you know, how, how you got this way. And uh, the guy said, Ayn Rand. So Menser went back, uh, reread The Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged, um, the collective works of Anne's, or Ayn Rand's uh, novels. I think he was especially fond of um, the Romantic Manifesto and made a serious study out of objectivism. But this was this was after his retirement from professional bodybuilding. But that's arguably where Menser did the most work in advocating um, his theory of high intensity training and also uh, continuing to give credit to Rand in a number of interviews and written publications that he had. Okay. I, I didn't um, know that like the extent of his um, interest in Rand, but I found some quotes in, earlier uh, from what I was reading. I thought maybe I would just read one of them and uh, just to give people a flavor of his level of interest and knowledge. So let me see if I can find quickly the, the quote that I was looking at. Just a sec. Okay, I found it. All right, so here's a quote that I found that uh let's see this is apparently he said this in an interview i'm not sure what interview but this is what at least is what is attributed to him he says quote learning logic and acquiring the ability to think critically is not easy though not impossibly difficult i learned how to do these things by reading and quote digesting unquote the works of novelist philosopher ayn rand to get started on the proper methodical path, read her books of explicit philosophic essays, Philosophy Who Needs It, especially the introduction and the first two chapters, and the Romantic Manifesto, which you mentioned, uh, especially the second chapter, Philosophy and Sense of Life. After reading and rereading the first couple of chapters from each of those books, put them aside for a while and read her two epically great novels, the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, in that respective order. Just as is true with any other context of knowledge, philosophy must be studied in a logically structured order, unquote. So uh, I just wanted to give uh, people a little flavor of his own words on, on Rand, because right? I found it really interesting to, to, to read that. All right, I see we have two minutes left on this call, and I don't want us to get interrupted in mid-sentence. So sure. how about I end this call, and then I will send you a new link. Sounds perfect. All right. We are back talking about Mike Minster and related topics, subjectivism. So uh, as uh, 
we were uh, taking a little break there, I, I found another couple quotes by Mincer from that article, which I thought it would be interesting to, to read to the audience. So let me just uh, read a couple more quotes from Mincer. Okay, so, all right, so this is, it's actually just a table of contents from one of his books. It's called Heavy Duty 2, Mind and Body. So here are the titles of the chapters in that book. Introduction, the mind, check your premises. Nature to be commanded must be obeyed. Another kind of definition, balancing the theoretical account, praxis, serving the needs of the growth mechanism. And last chapter is either or. So if you know Ayn Rand's writings, then some of those chapter titles will definitely leap out at you as uh, showing some influence by Ayn Rand, like check your premises. Um, and then I'll just read uh, uh, a couple paragraphs here from uh, chapter one, uh, titled Bodybuilders Are Confused. And so it says, um, there's a quote. Okay, so he starts with a quote from Ayn Rand in his chapter, I guess that's what's going on here. So um, Mincer says, quote, explaining the relationship between man's mind and art, Ayn Rand wrote in an essay titled The Psychoepistemology of Art, quote, while in other areas of knowledge, men have outgrown the practice of seeking the guidance of mystic oracles in the field of aesthetics, this practice has remained in full force and is becoming more crudely obvious today, unquote, from Rand, continue with Mincer. To my knowledge, Miss Rand had no interest in, in bodybuilding, but if she had, she would have observed a similar phenomenon. The bodybuilders I communicate with on a daily basis are agonizingly confused. The sole source of information for many of them is muscle magazines, which they read with, an almo with almost religious zeal regarding the words contained therein as if they were the revealed truth of sacred scripture or as oracular pronouncements not to be questioned, but passively accepted on blind faith, unquote. So that's another uh, taste of Minster's own words that I thought would be good to get in here. Have you read any of his books? Yeah, to my knowledge, Mike, I believe, has uh, four books that are credited to him. Uh, he's done a number of smaller things like journals that came out in the 70s and the 80s. Um, have his first book, Heavy Duty, and I'm, I'm really glad you asked because I was going to segue into how Rand's uh, influence is far more evident across his later writings. Um, I, Heavy Duty 2, Mind and Body, which you quoted the table of contents, is actually the hardest one of his books to get. Uh, that's the one that I'm currently missing. His latest book, which was published... Um, shortly, I think the manuscript was approved a couple of days before he died, came out in 2001. It's called High Intensity Training the Mike Menser Way. And uh, posthumously, author John Little, um, another advocate of high intensity training and friend of Mike Menser, and also, uh, I believe, a master's in philosophy, um, wrote a book called The Art and Wisdom of Mike Menser. Um, to touch on Mike's first book, he was largely continuing to promulgate high intensity training theory the way that Arthur Jones had recommending basically three full body workouts Monday, Wednesday, Friday with some small changes. Um, as Mike continued to read Rand uh, throughout the early to mid 80s when he published uh, Heavy Duty 2, which I think came out in the late 80s, early 90s, 
And then especially by the time his latest piece, uh, High Intensity Training the Mike Benzer Way came out, um, you could tell he really went back to the fundamental principles and then tried to uh, determine what logically follows from those principles. So the theory of training, although it still shares the same tenets as high intensity training, he called heavy duty. And it's, it's kind of, um, if Rand owes a debt of intellectual gratitude to Aristotelian logic, and then you can see the influence uh, of Aristotle in a lot of Rand's writing, um, then Menser similarly um, took the same idea of, of starting with what are the most basic fundamental principles or axioms and then what logically follows from there and builds on top of that. So Menser continued to, to update his beliefs with respect to training, um, but always adhered to those same fundamental principles. And uh, I think as often as he quotes Rand, I think objectivism definitely shows its influence in that regard. Okay. Yeah, so I'm interested in hearing a bit more about how Rand influenced him. And so sometimes people say, like, what is the objectivist view of X? Like the objective view of diets or education or uh, fitness training. Maybe there isn't one. Maybe there is one. Maybe it's not a philosophical issue. But so you said something about how he he started with, I don't know if you mentioned the term axioms, but somehow he he tried to infer based on objectivist principles, his, his method of training. So could you say some about uh, how Rand influenced him and what kind of inferences he drew from her ideas to get to where he ended up in his thoughts about uh, training practices? Sure. Um, to kind of tie into what you said, I, uh, and again, I, I consider myself a student of objectivism. So if I misrepresent anything, please correct me. Um, a lot of times when you're engaging in, in philosophical discussions with people, they usually want to jump straight to ethics or politics and not realizing that uh, politics is derived from ethics and ethics is derived from metaphysics and epistemology. And a lot of times if you have different beliefs about metaphysics or epistemology, your likelihood to have similar beliefs with respect to ethics can be very different. Um, as far as how objectivism influenced Mike's writings, um, Mike. I think a lot to the law of identity. Mike was a, a big proponent, especially in his audio tapes, that there's only one reality. And because there's only one reality, there can only be one most accurate description of any aspect of reality. Um, both Newtonian physics and general relativity can't be equally valid descriptions of reality because they contain contradictory data, um, contradictory uh, mathematical formulas and, and approaches to trying to solve the same problems. Um, similarly, no two approaches to exercise can be equally valid because they're contradictory, you know, high sets or low sets. Do I use heavyweights, lightweights? Do I lift slowly? Do I lift quickly? Um, and because there's only one reality, because man is uh, an individual of a very precise metaphysical nature, there can only be one best way to train for a specific goal. And he started with the fundamental principles, um, you know, in uh, objectivist metaphysics, you start with existence, existence exists, right? That's the primary axiom at the beginning. And then you, you build from there. Um, with respect to high intensity training, you start with what's man's physiologic nature. And then you start with what are the fundamental principles, intensity, duration, and frequency. And he built from there. And that really differentiated his style of training from Arthur Jones's version of high intensity training. 
okay so he starts with man's nature and from that he infers a certain method of training is best i was i'm wondering like if there's any room for optionality here like for instance in in objectivism it would say uh, the part of the ethics of objectivism is that productiveness is a virtue and uh someone should have should try to have at least a, a central purpose in life some kind of productive career goals that they're working on but it doesn't say that you have to be a lawyer or a dentist or a computer programmer or a dietitian. There's all kinds of options in the kind of productivity that you engage in that are equally consistent with being with human nature. There's not just one way to do it. So I wonder if there might be something like analogous to that in the case of working out that there are certain basic principles, but there are options and how you fulfill them or maybe in the case of exercise it is more constrained or maybe it's constrained depending on your goals like if if you're trying to be a mr olympia you, you might have to do it a certain way but if you're just trying to stay healthy um, then maybe um, you could depart from those principles so um, i wonder like how strict he was about this in terms of it saying you know this one way of working out is that really the best for everyone just like productivity or being honest is best for everyone. It's not an optional sort of value. Yeah, I I tend to think um, and maybe an easy a parallel in terms of like an area of optionality would be exercise selection. Um, hypothetically, if a barbell squat I thought was the best way to develop bigger, stronger legs, um, if you were my client and you just didn't feel comfortable doing squats, it, it wouldn't be productive and it wouldn't do either one of us any good if I made you do squats. You'd never get the same degree of effort out of it. And you would never get the same degree of productiveness out of it because you weren't comfortable with some aspect of that movement. Now, because every single exercise for a certain muscle group is a little bit different, they can't all be equally as effective at stimulating growth in that particular muscle. Um, but as long as you're adhering to the principles that exercise must be intense, brief, and relatively infrequent, there's a wide variety of moves that you could use. You, you, you're not confined to solely using machines, even if they're the best designed machine in the world. You're, you're not stuck using just barbells or dumbbells or exercise bands. Um, that would probably be the easiest example of more of an area of optionality with respect to exercise, but it, it doesn't change the fact that based on the immutable laws of physics, things like the uh, force velocity curve of muscles, length tension relationship, whether you have variable or fixed resistance, um, the, some aspects like that will determine that some exercises absolutely are better for some muscle groups compared to other exercises. But it, it wouldn't begrudge somebody if they didn't feel comfortable with a particular movement. Um, at least as a owning a personal training student and working with people, my goal is to, is to safely get people results. And that's, that's essentially what I'm being paid for when I train somebody. Okay. And uh, I just thought um, it might be good for people to have some resources. So if they want to look into this more, um, are there any particular sources you would recommend? Like we, we talked about Mincer's own books, but maybe there's also a website or if you want to plug something of your own, uh, feel free. Um, we could also do this sure. at the end, but maybe since I just brought it up now, maybe there, you could mention uh, some resources. Well, I think, a, I think a good starting point would be for most individuals to read the book Body by Science by Doug McGough. Um, it was co-authored by John Little, 
Uh, both gentlemen are high intensity training athletes. Doug McGuff is a ER surgeon, or sorry, uh, emergency room technician. Um, and in my opinion, that's, that's the best book ever written on exercise. It, it covers all attributes of exercise and high intensity training theory and, and provides a really solid starting point for most individuals wishing to improve their overall health and fitness and do so in a manner that doesn't make them a slave to the gym. Um, another great resource for people who might be more interested in the physiology is there's a meta-analysis by James Fisher, James Steele, Brad Schoenfield, uh, came out in 2011. I believe it's called... Um, uh, I think it's called recommendations for, um, shoot, I, I have it, uh, evidence-based guidelines for resistance training. But if you just search for James Fisher, James Steele, evidence-based, um, they analyzed 131 different studies with respect to all factors of exercise and basically concluded similar to high intensity guidelines that one or two workouts a week, um, selecting a weight, you know, it can be light, it can be heavy, lift slowly, only one, maybe two sets of muscle group um, and as much intensity as you can safely generate. Um, this was the finding of or analyzing all of these studies. Um, so both of those would be excellent starting points. Otherwise, a number of individuals, uh, Jay Vincent is a professional fitness model that trains in this manner, Drew Bay, Ken Hutchins, um, myself, we all promote uh, this particular style of exercise. Um, I do have a YouTube channel. If you just search my name, you'll find it. Otherwise, my uh, personal training studio was called 18 minute fitness. Um, but that's a little bit more focused on, uh, local things around this area. Okay. Good to have all that on record. And, uh, maybe I'll also put a link in the description to the article that I was quoting from. So if anyone wants to find that or read more about Mincer, uh, you'll have that as well. Let's see what else I have here in my notes. Um, it's interesting that John Little came up. I've, I've come up across him a few times in my in my life in kind of different ways. So Will Durant, I don't know if you're familiar with Will Durant at all. But he was a historian um, who who I love, his works I love, uh, The Story of Civilization. And John Little did a documentary on Will Durant, which I came across many years ago. And then also I found he, he did a documentary on Bruce Lee, who I'm also interested in. And then I found out there was an Ayn Rand connection and he did a... <laughs> documentary on Leonard Peikoff in yep. his own words I think that's Leonard Peikoff in his own words I believe is the title of it and then yep. now there's this there's this Mike Mincer connection so it's interesting how they're all all these uh um John Little keeps popping up in all these different ways so uh have you had any um did, did you say you've actually uh, you know John Little or have you worked with him at all we're no and that high intensity training uh circle is pretty small. I think we're Facebook friends, but I don't know if we've ever talked. Um, and yeah, you're right. He, uh, he went to college for philosophy. I think he got his master's and, um, has a big interest in Bruce Lee. He's one of the, the very few people that has access to the majority of Bruce's estate and a lot of, uh, Bruce's media. Um, John Little's YouTube channel, a lot of great videos about Will Durant. Uh, he has a lot of interviews he did with Mike Menser over the years. So, um, John Little is another person that recommends training in a lot of these similar principles, but also uh, comes from a background of philosophy. And I'll try and find it and send it to you, but there is a couple of videos on his channel where he and Mike Menser discuss uh, Ayn Rand specifically. Yeah, I actually, right, <laughs> right before, <coughs> excuse me, right before we started talking, I found some video on his channel of, I guess it was a phone call he recorded with Mike, um, maybe in 1990. Um, so 
uh, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll listen to that later. I just heard of the first couple minutes or so of it, but it looked like it was about 40 minutes long. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you know <coughs> um, anything about Mike Minster's relationships with like significant others? I was, I mean, I was just kind of curious about that. I didn't see any information like was, was he ever married or um, um, to my knowledge, he had a number of girlfriends over the years. Um, as far as I know, he never married. He had a younger brother, Ray, that was also a very successful bodybuilder. Um, Ray was married and had a daughter, but um, both Mike and Ray were pretty secretive and, and introverted in a lot of ways and, and kind of kept to themselves. Um, but to my knowledge, um, I thought I heard that Mike and Ray had a sister, but if she's out there, then she's not doing much to. Um, kind of make herself known, which is perfectly fine. Um, and it's tragic. Uh, Mike's younger brother, Ray, I think died two or three days after Mike. Um, both had some serious health issues in their late 40s. Yeah, that was, um, for anyone who doesn't know, so Mike died, I think, when he was 50 years old. He had, I read that he had some heart condition. And then like you said, his brother died two days later, maybe because he had some kidney condition. Yep. I wonder if if uh, steroids had anything to do with either of those, because I've I think I've heard that steroids can have some adverse effect on the heart. Um, so uh, I don't know if that had anything to do with it. But. Yeah, I, I suspect it, it may have played a role. Um, Mike and Ray both smoked even, even later in life, having health issues that they did. Mike was in the air force when he was, I think 18 to 22 and, um, continued to smoke well into his later years, despite having heart issues. And, and same with Ray, uh, Ray, I believe that God knows why it skipped, uh, skipped a dialysis, dialysis appointment or two. Um, they were filming a DVD days before Mike died. And there's some outtakes where both of them are smoking and should probably, you know, Ray should probably almost be in the hospital at that point. But uh, uh, Mike especially was was quite the workaholic. Uh -huh. It's interesting how these guys are, I mean, they're so um, in such amazing condition in one respect, but then, then they have, they die early and they have these other conditions. But, um, well, I, I guess, you know, part of the way they got to that level, if it's through taking these drugs, then it's um, maybe it's not despite getting to that level that they had their early demise, but maybe because of the way they got to that level, um, taking the steroids. Um, yeah, it definitely could be. And, and unfortunately, and I, I mean, I've competed before. I've always been drug free. I have no desire to ever take steroids, um, but all steroids are synthetic derivatives of testosterone and, and, you know, hormones are signaling molecules in the body that tell specific cells to do specific things. So while testosterone does absolutely make your muscles bigger and stronger, another function of testosterone is it tells your bone marrow to make more red blood cells. So people that take steroids often have their blood pressure go way, way, way up. And, you know, with drastic increases in blood pressure comes the opportunity for stroke and other cardiovascular conditions. Um, there's, sadly, there's a lot of bodybuilders dropping dead in their late 20s through their 40s or maybe even really early 50s uh, nowadays. Um, it's one thing that makes me really disillusioned with uh, bodybuilding as a whole. Uh-huh. Yeah, they've uh, got these bodies that look like Greek gods, but they're uh, not as in great condition as you might think from the outside. 
Well, and if I can just interject quick, what a lot of people don't see is like, you see these really healthy physiques on stage. And then like when you're backstage, um, most of these guys are laying down. You're, you're laying down and you're eating gummy bears or, you know, a little bit of sugar to just kind of keep you going through the next time of the day. But the last week leading up to a show, what most people don't realize is you might get a couple of days of training in, but usually when you're, when you're that lean, your hormones are all messed up. You're, you're crying for no reason. I remember, I remember prepping for competitions where a couple of days before a show, I, I could basically only just lay on the couch. And if a sad commercial came on, I would cry and I would cry uncontrollably because I just, my hormones were all out of whack. Um, you're not sleeping very well. You're, you're dehydrating your body quite severely to try and get that paper thin skin. You're consuming nightmarish amounts of salt. And then later in the week, you load potassium and messing with your electrolytes um, interferes with cell function. So there's sadly, there's, there's bodybuilders who die every year, you know, the day before a show because they're dehydrated because mm -hmm. they're trying to get as lean as possible. And a, a real fit looking body in a lot of ways is not a healthy body. And then it messes, especially with women, um, really messes with the hormones. It's, I, I'm not a big proponent of, uh, of competition. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. You, you've actually done this. So you, so you've competed in bodybuilding competitions. Yep. And when, when was the last one you did? 2009, um, NPC, Wisconsin. Um, I, I got one out of the way. I was, I was getting married that year and I thought, uh, you know, what, what better way to get in shape for my wedding than to kind of check this off of my bucket list. And uh, it turned out that was, um, that was a hell of a strain <laughs> on my relationship at that time that close to the wedding is it was a stupid idea in retrospect. Okay, so this is 13 years ago now, because we're in 2022 for. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so it's been a while. And you, do you think your competing days are, are behind you? Or are you plan to do any more of that? Or? I get the itch every now and then I, I'm 37 now. So, I mean, I was, I was significantly younger, but I, I also have a lot more muscle than I did back then. Um, so every, every once in a while I get that itch and then I realize, okay, like what, what's the value here? What am I really hoping to achieve? Do I just want to get in the best shape that I can get in or, or am I trying to prove something? Um, and to me, I, I'm a single dad. I have a daughter that's about to be nine. Um, I don't want her to see me on the couch the last week or two, basically unable to function and getting dizzy and almost passing out every time I stand up, um, getting mad and snapping, you know, for no reason, or just crying uncontrollably because you, you saw a video where like someone blew a tire on their car. Um, I don't want my daughter to see that. So to me, I, I think my competitive days are behind me, but every once in a while I, I, I do get that itch. Um, but Again, it's it's a question of values, and I think what am I, what would I really gain if I did this? And I, that's a pretty empty list right now. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe in the future someone can invent uh, some new method of diet or exercise <laughs> so that you know people can you know get into that condition without the adverse effects. Um, well, what would really change it would be would be changes in the judging, and the reason like the reason drugs are such a big deal now is because mass is respected over everything. If you go back to the 1970s, like when Mike was competing, you know, most of these guys were never heavier than like 210, 215 pounds. And now the guys that are winning are consistently 260, 270 plus. I, I think the last Mr. Olympia was about 280 and maybe like five, nine, five foot 10. Um, 
And I don't care how lean you are to have that much tissue on your body just puts strain on your heart. Um, and you will pay the long-term consequences for that. So if, if the judging was such that they didn't demand such a high degree of mass and conditioning, um, there could be a real renaissance in the sport that, that really emphasized more health. But for right now, there's too much money in the supplement industry. Um, it's a, like a $70 billion a year business. And for the most part, um, I think very few people, if any, should ever even take a supplement. Um, but you put these freaks on a magazine and uh, sell kids the ideology that if you train hard enough and you take your protein and your pre-workout that, you know, you too can have 20 inch arms and then maybe one in a million people have the genetics for it. Yeah. I'm wondering if uh, I was thinking about, you know, male female relations here and like, do some of these guys um, get into it because they think it's going to help them get women or look more attractive. But I've, I've heard women often say that, you know, I like some muscle, but not that much, you know, that's like, yeah. that's, that's, that's overdoing it. And, um, it, it grosses them out. At least some women have that. Um, but maybe some women like it, but, um, just to, uh, tie this to Ayn Rand in, in a couple of ways. Um, so one is I think her personal preference, I believe was a leaner kind of physique. Like, I don't, I don't think her, her heroes were very, uh, muscular, um, but the other, you know, which is not to say that uh, that's the objectively right, right reference and that there's no optionality here, but um, I think that that happened to be her, her preference. The other Ayn Rand connection I thought of here was, um, it, which hooks back up to my question about Mike Minster's relationships. So I was thinking like, um, there's this line in Atlas Shrugged. Have you read Atlas Shrugged? Yep. Okay. So there's this line, what a magnificent waste. I don't know if you remember that line, but um, Francisco says that to Dagny because she's at a, a, a ball and she's dressed up very beautifully, but she's single. Mm. She doesn't have a man in her life. And he says, what a magnificent waste. And I was thinking maybe in a way that could apply to like a bodybuilder like Mike Mincer. He's got this amazing physique, but if he doesn't have you know somebody to... A significant other to share that with you might say you know what a, what a magnificent waste this is so that was one of the things that made me think but, of uh, you know what relationships I, I, I think rand when asked about her writings that she wrote the novels uh as a way to um like personify or kind of concretize her image of the ideal man uh something like that there was a direct quote that eludes me um but if you read even the fountainhead when she's describing how thin and like almost sinewy sometimes Rourke is um, when he's like hunched over his desk working or when he's standing at the quarry. Um, if I could give a quick nod to Atlas Shrugged when I opened this personal training studio, I, I really wanted to give a nod to the John Galt line uh, when Dagny opens the John Galt line using uh, reared in steel. And because of the expression, who was John Galt, she calls it the John Galt line. I really wanted to call this business John Galt Fitness, but I as a nod to that, but I strongly suspected that the Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand Institute probably wouldn't like that. Um, but I, I thought there'd be a kind of a beautiful nod and almost degree of irony to that because, uh, you know, the style of exercising is, is so iconoclastic. Um, mm. And yeah, Menser was, um, Menser was quite the character and really kind of touching back on what I said about like, why would I compete again? Yeah, in a lot of ways I could, I can see that what a waste um, to put 
that much time and effort and focus and dedication into something like a bodybuilding competition when you're when you're only on stage uh, posing for a few minutes over the course of a day. Um, but there's a lot that goes into that. Uh, and Mens are uh, kind of quite the tragic hero, especially the way that his life ended and the way that his career was within bodybuilding. Yeah, the um, so I, I was there's a few directions I'm, I'm thinking of going here. So there's uh, um, so independence is, is one thing I'm thinking about here because when I'm thinking about the influence of Rand on Mincer, one I don't know if this is correct, but I'm thinking maybe one of the ways it influenced him, which I think he was sounded like he was mentioning in one of the quotes I read before about how all these guys are reading the, the muscle magazines like their sacred scripture instead of thinking for themselves. So I was thinking, well, maybe a way that it influenced him is he thought for himself. He just didn't he didn't just um, go with the herd, so to speak, and do what everybody else is doing. But he he made his own observations and he was kind of experimental about things and testing stuff out and realized, hey, this this other thing this new high intensity thing uh, is working out. It's giving me some really good results. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll give that a try. So maybe it reflected a kind of independence on his part, which maybe was inspired partly by a uh, Randian uh, ethics. I'm not sure, but that was, that was just one connection I thought maybe could be made here. Yeah. In a, in a number of his lectures and also some of his later writings, he, he, always prefaced um, the lectures and the writings by stressing the importance of developing a rational, critical mind. And I, I believe uh, to loosely quote him, he said something like, what good does it do to have a set of biceps that would do justice to an adult gorilla if you haven't developed an equally impressive mind? Um, and throughout his writings, he continues to uh, put forth the idea that uh, to really develop a muscular body, let alone a single muscle, you have to first know what the function of the muscle is. Um, and then effectively how to work it. It's, it's not good enough to just blindly follow tradition. Um, and I think a lot, the more you listen to him speak, you can, you can really hear the influence of, of the fountainhead. And that's just this, this constantly reoccurring theme in the fountainhead is that all of these nods to tradition are, are in a lot of ways just vacuous. Um, you know, a building is a living thing. It, it needs to fit the environment, the purpose, the creator and, and the inhabitant of that area. Um, and Mike always hammered those points home with his writing that like study logic, read Ayn Rand, uh, develop your mind. And when you're able to do that, you'll learn something of value, not just, not just about bodybuilding and nutrition and building a better physique, but this will help you in other areas of life as well. Okay. I just see one of these, uh, messages pop up again. It did another eight minute warning. So, um, <laughs> Um, maybe we'll have to do one more link, but, um, may, or maybe we'll finish up in the next few minutes. We'll see. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, maybe, maybe we can transition now to the final bullet point that we originally had, um, when we were talking earlier of, um, veganism or more generally diet. So you said that you would, you saw some video on my channel where I was talking about veganism and then you had some thoughts about um, carnivore diets. And I think you were more inclined to think that was an ethical sort of diet. Um, but let me not put words in your mouth. Let me just um, open up the, the floor to 
the general topic of diet, if you want to go to that now, because um, I think you said you had some thoughts about that you were interested in sharing. Yeah, just full disclosure, I am an advocate of a, a purely carnivorous diet. Um, and and I, I try not to make too many claims without like giving a reference. So uh, vegan cardiologist Joel Kahn on Joe Rogan's podcast said essentially 80% of dietary guidelines come from epidemiology, which is a, a study that tracks the populations and tries to establish varying degrees of correlation between um, like what a group of people eat and then overall health comes or overall health outcomes. Um, but to me, this is inherently problematic because one correlation can't prove causation. And two, um, it's more of a soft science to me where there's a lot that's known about human physiology, nutritional biochemistry that are, that are hard sciences and, and are essentially fully agreed upon. Um, scientists have gone and they can look at uh, radioisotopes of nitrogen in early humanids and, and not only see that we were carnivorous, but we were hyper carnivorous. Um, we ate a diet that almost exclusively consisted of, of uh, animal meat. Um, agriculture essentially wasn't invented until about 12,000 years ago. The modern refrigeration that makes you know supermarkets possible didn't really exist until post-World War II. So the idea that you know, we could go out on any given day and get the vast majority of our diet from plants, I, I think is largely incongruent with man's uh, nature as a species. And we've been homo sapien for 200 to 400,000 years. And we've been in the homo genus for, I think about 4 million years. And for the vast majority of that time, we were getting the, the overwhelming majority of our nutrition from animals that we could hunt and kill. Um, so it was interesting hearing you talk about veganism and, and the ethics behind it are one thing, but I start from like a first principle. What do we what do we know about nutrition? There are things that our body needs, and there are things that our body doesn't need. And there is zero dietary need for carbohydrate. All the sugar that you know some of the cells in our brain or red blood cells need, um, our body can make all the sugar it needs through a process called gluconeogenesis. Uh, there's zero need for dietary sugar. Uh, we do need essential fats. We do need proteins. Um, certain nutrients are. are missing in vegan diets, EPA, DHA, B12, uh, magnesium, calcium, um, omega-3 fatty acids. So to me, like we don't, we never begrudge a lion for hunting a zebra. It's, it's what they eat. It's, it's based on their nature. So to me, like a man as a species for a really long time has eaten almost exclusively meat and there's zero need for dietary carbohydrates. And dietary carbohydrate, um, eating more than like four to five grams of sugar at our time elevates our blood sugar. And then we release insulin to lower our blood sugar to get it into our liver, our muscles, or fat cells because elevated blood sugar is literally toxic. Um, that's what type two diabetes is. It's, it's a chronic disease of, of chronically elevated blood sugar. Um, and I know we're a little tight on time, but um, to me, it's not immoral to eat something that we're biologically designed to eat. Um, that, that's part of our identity is we have things that we're supposed to eat and there are sources for that. And there are a number of vitamins and nutrients that people need as human beings that are essentially just bereft in uh, all plant-based sources. Okay. So this is, um, I guess, quite far afield from objectivism and RAN. Uh, it's uh, getting into the nitty gritty of the, the science and uh, of diet and how it all works. But um, the, uh, I guess, 
to try to connect it to that previous call I had a bit. Uh, so this is um, with Philosophical Zombie Hunter. That's the name yep. of the, the guy that I was speaking with about this. So I think he had ethical concerns due to things like um, factory farming, like the conditions in which animals are raised. And um, I guess all things being equal, if you can have a hamburger that's uh, comes from meat that you know didn't come from a factory farm you know it'd be better to go with that one uh if yep. the if you know if the cow had a better life um <clears throat> so that's that's one sort of ethical concern but there's a different sort of ethical concern which i think is not due to like the condition the animal was raised in but just like what's best for your own health uh, yeah. like and that, i think that's more what you were speaking to um like given the the history of our species we we evolved eating in a certain way and maybe that's um that's best for us uh the the agricultural di uh, model didn't uh come into being until relatively late in evolutionary um terms and so maybe maybe that's not as good for us i think so it's a different sort of ethical concern that you were raising yeah, and, and uh, make it a little bit more broad with respect to the philosophy. Man is a being of a, of a very specific nature. And um, because of our physiologic nature, uh, and similar to how Mike advocated, no two theories can be equally valid descriptions of any aspect of reality. Both a vegan diet and a carnivorous diet cannot be equally valid approaches to health um, because they contain contradictory approaches. Um, so that's, I guess, how I would start in a, in a more broad philosophical sense. And then, then I probably should have started with that well before getting anything you know precise about physiology okay i see we're just about done so um do you want to do one more we don't have to do a full another segment but just to wrap it up so we don't get cut sure. off all right yeah, i'll send you great. another link in a couple minutes sounds good all right okay so unfortunately uh i just realized i was not recording for the last i don't know how many minutes we were wrapping up we were in the middle of talking about the uh the issue of diets and genetically modified foods and paleo diets and life extension and we hit a bunch of good things and i really wish we had it all recorded but unfortunately i didn't hit the record button so i apologize about that maybe in another episode uh, we can we can cover the, some of those topics but anyways um i really appreciate having jerome on i i, I was saying that i uh we covered a lot of topics in, in this episode that are different than topics I've had uh, previously on my channel. So I, I was glad to have the opportunity to cover some new ground here. So um, thank you, Jerome, very much for coming on. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me on tonight. All right. And thanks to the audience for watching. I will see you in the next video. Bye-bye.